As someone who's written a lot about the business of medicine over the years, I'm extremely pleased to welcome an award-winning young science reporter today who's making big waves with his investigative journalism. And I think you'll greatly enjoy our very candid conversation about the intersection of science, media and money. Hello, I'm Ray Moynihan, and this is The Recommended Dose, the podcast encouraging a more questioning approach to healthcare, produced by Cochrane Australia and co-published by the BMJ. A former Young Journalist of the Year in Australia, Liam Mannix went in just a few short years from a cadet to being offered the role of National Science Reporter, based at the Age newspaper in Melbourne. At the time, I wasn't really expecting it. Uh... It wasn't something that was on my radar. And then I started doing it and almost immediately fell in love with it and realized it's what I wanted to do with the rest of my career. It, um, it's so fun. It's so rewarding. It's so interesting. Uh, every day is an entirely new thing to report on. And for somebody who's curious like me, it, it's just a total boon because there is so much about the world to learn and to report on. It's fantastic. Um, I think I'm right in saying that also five years ago you won a very prestigious Young Journalist of the Year Award in Australia. I think you won that two years running, didn't you? Another amazing honour. <laughs> I did, I did. Uh, I was very lucky um, with those awards, but, yeah, it was, it was very nice to get recognised. One of the areas of science that you write a lot about is medicine and, mm. and healthcare, which is why, of course, you're joining us today on The Recommended Dose. Um, and you do seem very keen on, on investigative journalism, mm. uh, which is so desperately needed in the world of, of healthcare. We'll, we'll talk about some of your big stories in a moment, but how did you develop that interest in investigating medicine and healthcare w- within the science realm? Uh, look, I think... It- it, it interested me. So one of the things about science and reporting on science is that there are so many different things that you could possibly write stories about. You know, the, science is huge. There aren't that many reporters covering it. So yeah, your, your reach is infinite. But I felt like I, I had always wanted to do investigative journalism. I had always felt like there is a responsibility if you're a journalist and, and you know, you're fortunate enough to be at a paper like The Age where there are resources and time and the chance to make an impact. I felt like there was a real responsibility to do not just the good side of science, but um, the accountability stuff, the, the stuff that really makes a difference. And then if you look around um, and you say, right, wh- where are the bits of science that might my reporting can make a difference, I think you're naturally drawn towards medicine because uh, medicine and health is really, it seems to me, where science meets people and where science has perhaps the biggest chance to do the most good and also the most harm on a, a really personal level. So you, you've got that aspect. You've then got the money aspect, right? Like, the, you know, a lot of science is starved of money, uh, but medicine, wow, there's there's so much money. There are, The corporate interests are huge. Um, and then you've got this, this other sort of question about how science itself and, um, you know, evidence interfaces with actual practice and how what we learn uh, from studies is translated into to real health outcomes for people. So it, it's just an incredibly rich field as a reporter to be reporting in, um, which is why I'm particularly interested in it. It's so reassuring to hear this, uh, Liam, because my concern about so much science reporting over the years is that 
that it has been little more than gee whiz, isn't this fascinating? Isn't this new fact amazing? And isn't this scientist an amazing person? And you know, without wanting to discredit the great work science journalists do, I think far too much of it, both in Australia and in other countries, uh, where listeners will be familiar with their science reporting, far too much of it has been that sort of what I call the gee whiz style. And and you're really bringing a whole different approach, as you say, that the interface between science and people and science and commerce. Yeah, I, I, tr- I certainly try, Ray. I mean, um, I I think you're right. Like, Science communication is truly important. Like there are wonderful advances that we are making in science all the time that people want and should hear about, especially because, you know, the vast majority of it is paid with taxpayer dollars. But there are real questions for science. There are real challenges for science that science itself needs to address. And there are real problems with the way that science interfaces with people. Um, And I think... It is really difficult. It's really challenging as a general reporter to ever be able to address those. Like um, one example springs to mind uh, in quantum computing, for example, when when you're told as a general reporter, oh, you know, this is the future. We're going to get super fast computers. Isn't it wonderful? Um, here's a scientist to tell you these wonderful things. It's really hard to be skeptical. It's really hard to do any level of reporting on that because you probably don't understand how quantum computing works. You don't have the time to read research papers. You don't have the contacts. So I think there's a, there's a responsibility there um, as a science journalist to, to try and do more and to say, well, is this fair? Is this real? What does this really mean for us? Um, and, and I suppose that's what I'm trying to do. How hard is it to specialise these days? I mean, in the media, it seems that specialist health reporters do seem to be getting thinner on the ground. It's so hard, Ray. It's so hard. Um, in Australia, the amount of journalists that we have lost is is enormous. You know, there are thousands of people less in our newsroom and so much talent has gone and and that's a real tragedy really and I think um you know perhaps the public doesn't you you don't realize what you've got because it's not there but there's so much good reporting that goes undone I I feel it in science where like I can write about just about anything and it hasn't been covered it it hasn't been touched because there aren't those other voices out there the challenge of specialist reporting is is really real as well like um particularly in these areas where you need a really high level of knowledge to actually be able to do sensible reporting. So some of the reporting I've done um, looks at, uh, for example, I I covered ergonomics. Um, Now, you know, everybody sort of encounters ergonomics. They're given, you know, desk adjustments and they're told, here's how you sit and here's how to keep your back healthy. Uh, The problem with ergonomics is that there is no randomized controlled evidence, randomized controlled trial evidence that it works at all. That, like there's, there's just none. Um, it, it is a field that is entirely absent of that high-grade evidence. Now, can you as a, a, a generalist journalist report on that? I, I, I'm not sure you can because, first of all, you have to get to grips with the different levels of evidence, the different standards of evidence, then you have to be able to go through the scientific literature 
at least to a certain degree and say, well, okay, where is the evidence for this? And you have to be able to understand, you know, the work that Cochrane's done on ergonomics and, and what its outcomes mean. And then you have to be able to do the interviews and, and pull it all together into a sensible piece and show the shortcomings. I, I think, um, you know, I think that that sort of reporting is really difficult for a generalist reporter. And, and that's not to demean them, but it, it is a real luxury that I have to be able to spend the time with scientists, to be able to invest in learning about this stuff and understanding this stuff. And it gives you the ability to do journalism that I think is important and that really couldn't be done without specialists. So does that mean that the, the sort of loss of specialists, the loss of time for investigation, uh, not universally, but certainly as a, as a general trend, do you think that ends up in a sort of a dumbing down of a lot of what people see in here? Oh, is I'm not. I don't. Is dumbing down the right word? I think. I think the biggest losses are in a few places. First of all, a lot of the science and health reporting that used to be done by specialists has now been shunted onto generalists, and that means that in some cases, some of the stuff that a specialist reporter would pick up, they don't have the time and they don't have the background and knowledge to be able to pick up. You, you see this a bit with um, science journalism. Often a study will come out and there'll be a press release and it'll be handed to a general reporter and the general reporter will write a very accurate story based on the press release. Um, you know, and they, they've done their job well. They're under extreme time pressure uh, and there's not much else they could do and they don't want to get it wrong, but they're, they're a bit stuck, you know. They they can't, They as we discussed, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the background, they don't have the depth of experience, they don't have the time to do much different. So that's one way that, um, that, that, that the loss of reporters is felt. The other way is in the coverage of specialist issues and in the reporting of stuff that's difficult to report on. Um, and that is a place where I think we really feel the loss of specialist reporters. Like, I remember a time, you know, only five to ten years ago when um, we would cover essentially every single time a complaint is made to the TGA about dodgy um, about dodgy pharmaceutical claims made at chemists, you know, for, for your latest vitamin or miracle pill. Nowadays, we don't have the resources to cover all of those, so it, it goes missing. And, you know, these industries, they can just spring and bounce along with, with no scrutiny. And I think that's a real shame and a real loss. You're listening to The Recommended Dose with me, Ray Moynihan, today in conversation with the national science reporter with the Nine Network of Newspapers, Liam Mannix, who's based at The Age in Melbourne, Australia. Liam's recognised for his often groundbreaking investigations into conflicts of interest in science and health. I asked him about a recent story which led to one of Australia's leading universities being forced to admit that it overhyped its own science in a press release and also omitted to report who funded it. Uh, this was a real disaster for the University of Sydney. So the university put out a press release uh, which said, in the middle of flu season, if you eat elderberries, our new study has shown that you can reduce the symptoms of flu. And it really was that bold. It wasn't, you know, might reduce or, you know, could reduce. It was, it can reduce it. Do it. Uh, and then this got picked up around around Australia. It ran on page three of a prominent 
Melbourne newspaper that thankfully wasn't the age. Um, again, you know, it was one of it was a generalist journalist who was given the press release and did a very faithful job writing up what the press release said. And you'd trust it, wouldn't you? It's published scientific journal from a really big reputable university. Unfortunately, you, you shouldn't have trusted that research. What the press release didn't say uh, was that the study was in cells. And I'm sure your, your highly um, educated audience knows that you can't infer a result from cells to humans. And the really bad one was that the press release didn't mention that it was funded by an elderberry company. And then when we dug a little deeper, it turned out that the elderberry company uh, was selling a cold and flu remedy and that the elderberry company had said to the University of Sydney, this is great, we're really happy that you're promoting essentially our product and our research with this press release, but do you mind not mentioning the fact that we funded it or were involved? And so, you know, you, you generate this story that is uncritical and that people read and go, oh, wow, elderberries work. I, I better eat some elderberries. And oh my, look at that, an elderberry cold and flu remedy on the shelf at Chemist Warehouse. I better buy myself one of those too. Well, your story revealing all this had ended up with a pretty positive outcome, didn't it? It did. They, um, the university was very ashamed. And the best bit is they've now got a formal policy in place requiring that all press releases they put out mention conflict of interest and funding. But it's really important for all the other media organisations in Australia that don't have the specialist reporters and the time to do that because they'll be able to get these in the future and go, oh, okay, this is great, but it's funded by Big Elderberry. And guess just for the record, mm. purely because a study is, is funded by uh, the sponsor of the drug or the supplement doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad study, but clearly it's a vitally important piece of information to report on. Absolutely. It, it wasn't so long ago that you also revealed that Australia's leading publicly funded scientific body, it's called the CSIRO, was earning money from an endorsement of a diet pill, despite there being no good evidence that that pill helped reduce weight. What, that's an extraordinary story, but what was the fallout from that? Oh, it was shocking. So the CSIRO's name was actually on the side of this pill, which was essentially, you know, a placebo pill with, with no evidence that it worked. I, I remember calling up a, a scientist and saying, look, uh, can you look at this study that this pill's based on? And he's like, oh yeah, okay, this is kind of interesting. And I said to him, okay, so they're selling this pill and the CSIRO's got their name on it. And he's like, no, that that can't be true. That that is insane. This this is a preliminary study. I, I think it was in mice. Um, you know, it was just it was just shocking. So um, the CSIRO ended up flipping out and launching an investigation as to how this ended up being and how their name came to be on it and how come they were receiving money from every bottle of pills sold and the pill was pulled from the shelves, which perhaps was the best outcome of all. But yeah, I, I think it's just one of those cases, Ray. You see it more and more that um, commercial interests are spending money at the nation's universities and with the nation's research institutes and they pay for studies and that's good. And as you say, you know, just because it's commercially funded doesn't mean it's wrong. But these institutes, I think, need to ask themselves the question, is this funding paying for, for a good study or is this funding paying so that this company can cloak itself in the respectability of my institution's name? And if it's the latter, 
what damage am I doing to my institution's reputation by selling its brand essentially to these organisations? You're obviously a reporter, a good reporter. Do you also see yourself as some kind of advocate for greater transparency uh, around conflicts of interest? How, how do you see your role as, as a reporter? Oh, look, it, this is a challenge, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm still young. I'm still young to this. I've been doing science for two years and, and journalism for seven or something. Um, and the way that I was always taught journalism was that you you simply report the facts um, but I think I think I'm starting to feel like there is some responsibility for me there to advocate for some things like you know I'm, I'm not a scientist and I, I don't want to get I don't want to become an advocate but I think in some cases there there is a really clear case that there are some things that we should do better in in transparency. I think there's a really clear case and you know I'm I'm pushing for this in a few different organizations that universities should be upfront and declare in press releases, um, conflicts of interest and funding disclosures. And that's really easy. Like, it's in the paper. You, you just stick a line in and you say, this was funded by such and such. And, you know, it's, it's not going to do any, any damage. What it will do, though, hopefully, is prevent these sort of stories being written, you know, make it, <laughs> make it harder in, in some ways for me to do my job because ultimately that story that you write, that harms the reputation of the university, but it also harms the reputation of science. And I think in a lot of ways, science, you know, a lot of scientists talk to me about the importance of trust in science. Um, you know, like look at the climate change debate. We, we've got scientists making a case and, and many people in the community don't trust them. If scientists want to be trusted, if scientists want to have a position in society that, you know, is really respected and, and really trusted as experts, then I think they should look at themselves and say, right, we need to make sure we are as, as transparent about what we do as possible. Another issue that's very relevant here is trust. Mm. Um, and so a lot of researchers I've discovered are, you know, are very sceptical about this idea that they could trust a journalist, mm. particularly with a very sensitive investigation. Mm. Again, what, you know, when we see such appalling reporting all around us, mm. I'm sure you see it and, mm. and acutely aware of it. When we see such bad reporting and we see so many journalists letting, letting the team down, why would a researcher trust a journalist? Well, I think there's, there's two questions there. So wh why would a researcher trust a journalist? I personally argue to researchers that their research is important to people. Um, you know, you're, you're probably not doing science unless you're trying to make the world better and make a difference. And the reality is often the best way to communicate that or the people who have the biggest audience is newspapers. Like I, I am often struck by how powerful this medium is. You, you write something and change happens, Ray. Uh, if you want to get out and be part of the debate, then you know, newspapers are the place to be. So I think it, it is important to do. The, the second question comes in how a, a scientist can interface with a journalist in a way that the reporting is good. Um, and that the scientist is happy. I think, you know, there are a few things. First of all, you can um, sort of pick your target. Like, there are a lot of outstanding journalists. In fact, everybody at The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, the ABC has a, a, has a stable of outstanding journalists, and there are really good ones at News Corp as well. So, uh, if a scientist spends a little bit of time, they could sort of pick the right journalist. 
then it's a matter of how do you talk to the journalist and how do you communicate with them? I'm not averse to scientists saying at the end of a conversation, hey, look, I'd really love to help you fact check this story. I think that's where a lot of scientists get a bit uncomfortable with journalists, the idea that they'll give them this thing and then it'll be wrong. Journalists, as a, as a real rule, don't want to be wrong. Like, we, we don't. We hate it. We get in trouble. Our readers give us trouble. Journalists, much like scientists, are in this, I think, for the right reasons. So if a scientist is really good about it and says, look, call me, read me the article, I'm here, I'll text you, I'm super available, then, you know, journalists will be keen to use that. And I think the, the only other thing is some scientists, and this is a very rare exception, do treat journalists with a little bit of disdain. And I, you know, I can understand why journal, I think large parts of the community treat journalists with a, a bit of disdain. But I would ju- just, just encourage scientists against that. I mean, I think by and large, journalists are trying to do the right thing. And they're trying to do the right thing in difficult circumstances, you know. They're, most newsrooms these days are really young because we've lost so many. Um, they're not specialists. They don't have a lot of time, but they are trying to do the right thing. And and if scientists say, well, look, I'll, I'll talk to you. I'm, I'm going to try really hard to help you get this right. Then I think um, they will find that by and large, journalists do want to do want to, and will try to do the right thing as much as possible. Let's talk a little bit about mm. evidence just mm. briefly here, uh, Liam. I mean, we're speaking on a podcast produced by Cochrane Australia. Cochrane, of course, the global not-for-profit that disseminates, produces and disseminates systematic reviews of evidence about thousands of treatments and interventions and so on. What sort of evidence do you generally look for when you're putting stories together? I know there's a whole range of different sorts of evidence you need when you're working in the media, but give us a sense of the sort of evidence you look for. Well, one of the things that really surprised me about starting into science journalism was when I discovered the pyramid of evidence and learnt to my horror that expert evidence is considered the lowest form of of scientific evidence. And I was like, what? Really? Because I think um, everywhere else in journalism, if a scientist tells you something, you quote the scientist and you're like, look, the scientist says it must be true. Um, But yeah, once you start learning a bit about it, and this is the importance of, you know, having a chance to specialize, you realize that there are other much more powerful pieces of evidence. So what do I look for? Uh, Typically, I'm looking for good quality randomized controlled evidence. Um, I mean, the best stuff, I suppose, is always a really well done review of randomized controlled evidence that looks at biases. For example, the Cochrane, the Cochrane reviews, Ray. Um, So that would be uh, my highest standard of evidence. And then, you know, there are varying levels of evidence below it that you can include. And if you're putting them in, you make sure as a responsible journalist to always note the flaws of of a piece of research. But um, yeah, I've I've taken to making sure that I send my research past um, other scientists. There are a lot of experts out there in the community who are much better at interpreting levels of evidence than I am. So I really lean on them very heavily. As you and I and everyone listening knows, a lot of media coverage in healthcare and medicine does focus on the newest, the latest, you know, whether it's a a pill or a supplement or a genetic test or a robotic operation or something. I mean, that's not the only stories that get done, but there are a lot of them. I mean, any thoughts on how to try and wind back the sort of promotional hype in media coverage of medicine and get a much more rigorous, uh, you know, use of evidence? 
any tips or any thoughts on how to do that? Right. Honestly, it's got to come from the scientists and the universities themselves. I, I really think this. So, um, for specialist reporters, we can really say, well, I'm not covering a study a day model journalism. But for other journalists, you know, it's much harder for them to resist that that temptation because the universities and the whole complex around um, science communication are so efficient now. And it, it would amaze your readers at how good they are at this. So, or your listeners, sorry. Um, so, you can get a study now emailed into your inbox at 8am saying, here's a great study. It's in a scientific journal. Here are the findings. Isn't it wonderful? We're curing X or we're curing Y or we're curing Z. You can speak to the scientist at 9am and I've found a patient for you who will be in a photo at 10am. It's really hard to knock that back because you can come to your editor and, and have that story and they'll be like, well done. I've done this myself in the past because it is so easy and your editors and your readers don't really question it. Um, the only reason not to do it is if you really, you know, care about giving people accurate science and accurate context, um, and that's challenging. So I think, and I've said this in, to re, to um, media teams in the past, if scientists care about communicating their science in a better, more contextual way, then a lot of the onus is on them, I think, to speak to their media teams and say, hey, look, you know, I did this one study, but can we do a, a, a more comprehensive piece about all all of these things? And, you know, when you get your chance to interview your, your or be interviewed by a journalist, say to the journalist, hey, look, this is one interesting study, but here's five others that you should look at, and here's somebody else you should talk to, and here's the context of the field. And I think, you know, uh, I think scientists are a little guilty of, of this as well. I've certainly spoken to scientists who are very happy with encouraging the I invented a miracle pill myth <laughs> and, you know, become very uncomfortable when I'm like, oh, but this, but you're, you know, this research doesn't quite back you up. And in fact, it, it leads to some quite uncomfortable conversations because, you know, in one case, I, I wrote a story about a treatment and wrote to the scientist and said, um, look, you know, your your own study appears to suggest that your treatment's not much better than a placebo. And she wrote back and said, well, you, you clearly don't understand it. You, And she, she wouldn't go any further than that. She's like, you don't understand it. Don't cover my science. Apart from professional interests, institutional interests, commercial interests, we're also in the midst of this sort of technological firestorm of change in the media that you and, and everyone is sort of very aware of. And one of the things that's changed you know, since I was reporting is that your organisation Organization can now track how many readers each of your articles, uh, you know, has, uh, how long they stay, where they look, that kind of thing. I mean, this pressure to produce what's called <laughs> clickbait journalism, you know, is very real. Do you feel that change in, in your newsroom? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I tend to think of it as a good thing, though. Um, beforehand, newspapers were able to publish articles and have no idea how many people were reading them. And we would simply say, well, this is important. You know, this, this is an important thing and we're going we're gonna to cover it to death. And I think it's, I, look, I, honestly, I, I don't think it's a good thing to spend huge journalistic resources writing stories that nobody reads. Like, honestly, what, what, I just don't see a lot of value in, in writing stuff that nobody is clicking on and nobody is reading. I, I really don't. So the new journalism is a, not 
I, I would argue, I would disagree with you about clickbait. For us, as a quality newspaper, the new journalism is how do I take this important story and make people read it? And um, that is a challenge, but it's something that we're actually starting to get really good at. So um, one of the things with science, when I came into this round, one of the directions was, Liam, we want this round to generate a lot of traffic to generate subscribers and I was worried. I was like, oh, God, science. Are, are people going to find it too dry? Is it going to be something that isn't going to survive in this you know, modern um, journalism world? But, but it's been totally the opposite, Ray. People, when given a chance, love science and are fascinated and amazed by science and want to, be, want to have it explained to them and want to be excited and um, you know, uh, excited about their world. And science is, is one of the best ways of doing that. So certainly for, for us, I, I, think, um, I think the new world has, has actually been kind of good for science journalism. Well, that's very reassuring and, and a very positive take. <laughs> um, I mean, the other thing that's happening, of course, is the rise and rise of artificial intelligence. And, you know, it seems like in many other areas, the, the idea of robots reporting is becoming something of a reality. I think I'm right in saying that, you know, major news organisations, The Guardian, The Washington Post, others are already experimenting with robot reporting. And, and putting out stories written through algorithms and AI. I mean, what's your take on that? Are you similarly positive about that? What are the implications of using robots to report? Oh, geez, I hope they don't come for my job. Um, what are the implications of using robots to report? I think some of the best stuff that I've seen with robot reporting has been for really formulaic pieces. Um, I think it's the AP in America that now does a huge amount of business reporting and local sports reporting just using AI. And, you know, why not? Why, save the resources of an actual human journalist from doing the mindless formulaic sort of updates and, and little bits of news and actually invest them in places where it matters. I mean, maybe that, that'll be the future of AI in journalism, taking them out of stuff where they're not valuable and putting them putting putting human journalists in places where they can do investigations and they can do digging and they can do stuff that matters. And so would that be your confidence and optimism then about the future? So you would, anyone listening out there who might be considering a future in journalism, you'd be encouraging them? Oh, I'm, I'm too young to be a cynic, Ray. <laughs> um, uh, look, I think, uh, I mean, it's tough. If, if you're a young journalist listening to this, it is a genuinely tough career. I have seen so much talent um, that has, you know, had to leave the industry and so many enormously talented young people who just haven't been able to get a start because the jobs don't exist, which I think is an enormous shame and an enormous, um, you know, waste in, in some ways. So, it's really tough. Like if you're a young journalist and you're thinking about becoming, if, if you're thinking about going into journalism, you you got to recognise that it is tough. But if if you stick it out and you make it and you work hard, it it is like the it's a dream career. I can't imagine doing anything else. Right? I can't imagine anything could be better than this. Liam Mannix, thanks so much for speaking with the recommended dose today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Ray. The Recommended Dose is produced by Cochrane Australia's Shauna Hurley, co-published by the BMJ, edited by Jan Mutz and presented by me, Ray Moynihan. Thanks so much for listening. Listener.